Deception, the greatest weapon in war. We are the SpyFi guys, and this is Operation Mincemeat. Hello and welcome back to the SpyFi guys, where we cover spy fact, spy fiction, and everything in between. I'm Zach. I'm Christian. And this week we have the finale of our D-Day multi-part extravaganza. Right, well, this isn't actually D-Day though, it- no, it is not, but it's close enough to it. It's World War II. The movie came out recently. It's the new hotness. We're talking, of course, about Operation Mincemeat from 2021, starring Colin Firth. Right, and um, I know I saw this on Netflix. Was this a Netflix original? I feel like it was labeled as such, but sometimes when they do that, things. oh, it's exclusive Netflix. I feel like at least in the UK, it had a wider release. According to its movie poster, which I'm looking at on IMDb, it says in cinemas April 15th. So I guess it is not a Netflix original movie. Now, we've heard this story before, or at least parts of it. Very first set of episodes. Yeah, we've talked about it a couple times since then, but we have yet to give it the proper look that it deserves. All right. Do you have these uh, plot synopsis from IMDb? Yeah, let's jump right in here. During World War II... Two intelligence officers use a corpse and false papers to outwit German troops. Yeah, classic IMDb. Some of that is correct. Some of that is not. (laughs) So, like, for example, there's more than two people and they don't outwit German troops. They outwit German (laughs) intelligence officers or do they? Intelligence officers are part of the troops. But you know what? Let's just dive right in. Why don't we? By all means, take it away, sir. All right. So we start on July 10th. 1943 we get a narration which continues throughout the rest of it and of course because we have ian fleming in the story they're going to use him as the narrator they're going to show him typing because we know ian fleming is a writer brought me back to our very first couple episodes with fleming you know i do appreciate that unlike this one and age of heroes they didn't play up the ian fleming angle that much (laughs) it was actually i was expecting more of fleming but you know let's let's just dive right in so we get his narration he says in any story there's that which is seen and that which is hidden so it's basically conventional warfare and let's call it Mm -hmm. unconventional warfare which is intelligence so we see a submarine they talk about the war we see and the war we don't and Mm -hmm. there you see something getting thrown overboard off the submarine bunch of anxious people in uniforms we get more of this narration talking about a wilderness of mirrors we see Mm -hmm. a bunch of boats an armada and then someone says, pray. <laughs> and then the messages start on the teletype. We cut to six months earlier. We meet Ewan Montague, played by Colin Firth, who's reading a story to his son. He's reading from The 39 Steps by John Buchanan, one of the earliest spy stories. Well, not, not, one of the most famous earliest spy stories, at least. It's a really? book that I have and have not read. <laughs> That's cool. I know Alfred Hitchcock made a movie of it. And it's mm-hmm. been around. I appreciate that he wasn't reading his kid Alice in Wonderland. Because for some reason in movies, I feel like kids get yeah, read Alice in Wonderland some, a lot. It is a book which has been on my to do to read list and will be read hopefully soon. We'll see. We go to a dinner party and Montague's brother Ivor is there, played by Mark Gatiss, as well as Hester Leggett, played by Penelope Wilton, although you will know her as Harriet Jones, former prime minister. That's right. It took me a kind of a while to figure out who she was, but the voice, really? I think, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. it's kind of surreal to see her playing an old lady. I guess I've been watching a lot of Down, uh, Downton Abbey, so she's in there and, you know, she's this is more recent. I'm not right. sure, maybe that. <laughs> so, but yeah, so we find out that this party is not a retirement party for Montague. Uh, Montague makes a speech and apparently we find out that his wife, Iris, and his kids are sailing to safer shores in America. Cut over to a movie theater where Charles Chumley, which I believe is how you pronounce his name. Oh, it's spelled Chumodily. Yeah, well, that one's a rough one. I just called him Chum in my yeah. notes. Sees co-worker of hers, Jean. Forget what her last name is. Jean Leslie. I know that because I right. looked it up for Spy Factor's inspection. He's trying to talk with her and she's, you know, kind of indulging him a little bit, but then her date arrives and they sort of shuts him out. We've all been there, bro. <laughs> so we go back to Montague and his wife chatting after the party. Hester is still there. Um, Hester is like his secretary, basically his girl Friday. Mm-hmm. 
any other you know phrase you want to use for that. Money penny. We find out that Montague's family is Jewish, and that's part of why they're going away to America. And two, uh, it's a basically a trial separation. Yeah, there's something about how they don't really love each other anymore. Or it seems like he just doesn't know how to show that love. I don't know. It's a whole thing. It's not really what the movie's about either. No, no, it's not. Montague says bye to his family as they leave for presumably the boat. No. Not a plane. So we cut over to Churchill having tea outside. He's talking about the Sicily invasion. And apparently he's going through Sicily to get to Europe. The rest of Europe is the most strategic path, but also the most obvious. And they need to fool Hitler into thinking that it's Greece. So in this scene, it kind of plays up the invasion of Sicily as very important. And I must say, I felt a little bamboozled because... Because? Well, first of all, we know that they end up going into Europe via France in D-Day, like we've been talking about, not via Italy. And the reason why they can't go via Italy was because of the Alps. And it's not like they didn't Uh know the Alps were there. I mean, they they had to knock Italy out of the war. That's important. But don't right. try to make it more important than it is. Well, do you remember Andrew telling us about how every spy story, the spy in it, is the most important spy of the entire war? <laughs> uh, for reference, Andrew being Andrew Hammond, the historian and curator of the Spy Museum. Yes, yes. So, that you know, that's a fair point. Yeah, he um, just started in our episode about the imitation game. Check it out if you haven't already. That's a fair point, but I will say, I mean, it is an invasion. It was an important invasion. It's not D-Day, sure, but mm-hmm. it well, is important. Our heroes saved a lot of lives, and that's the most important thing. You don't have to do more than that movie. It's okay. I get it. It's World War II. There are a lot of important battles. I mean, you can probably name 10 off the top of your head right now if you really thought about it. Yeah, fair enough. But anyway, I think my point is made and we can carry on. Okay, okay. People visiting Churchill are Admiral Godfrey as well as Masterman, who I do not know what his rank is or what his position is. So has Godfrey been in a movie we've covered before? Yes, yes, he has. He's but been I, in Fleming. He was in Fleming, okay, because the name sounded he's familiar. The, he's, the, he's the Admiral that Fleming reports to, the one who recruited him mm. and... He's, he had a beard in Fleming, which is probably why you're like, didn't connect it. Yeah, he's like Fleming's equivalent of Denison. Well, also he's... from the imitation game. <laughs> he, no, he's Fleming's M, basically. Mm-hmm. So Godfrey here is played by Jason Isaacs. Also, we have Fleming here. Fleming played by... His name is Johnny Flynn. Johnny Flynn. That's that's a name. That's a nice, you know, movie star name. Johnny Flynn. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't recognize any of the shows or movies that he's in on IMDb besides this one. Eh. But yeah, so Fleming, like I said, calling back to our very first episode, Fleming. So it's a it's a side cool in a way to that. So we had Fleming, we have Masterman and we have Godfrey there. Lastly, by Churchill to figure out a way to ensure Hitler thinks that they're going to attack Greece and not Sicily. They say later, to skip ahead a bit, that actually Churchill doesn't have a choice. He already promised Roosevelt that they were going to be attacking Sicily, whether they fooled the Nazis really? or I not. Really? I don't remember that. Yeah, that is mentioned later. So on the one hand, they don't have a whole lot to lose, except the lives of other people, but they got to go for it. I mean, I feel like that's a lot to lose. And also, the, yeah, I think you're, you, you seem to be downplaying their efforts throughout this. That seems to be the theme here. It's just an interesting set of circumstances that that they're in, that they have a lot to do, a lot of stakes, but also that things are just kind of proceeding without them. Like whether they succeed or fail, things are going to still happen, which I think is interesting. All right. I may disagree, but let's Mm -hmm. continue. So we find that Charles Chomley lives at home with his mother. His brother died in the war, but his body is still overseas. And so Godfrey and Masterman run the 20 committee meeting, which is, I've never heard of the 20 committee. Have you? No, but from context, and then I I read a little bit about it later, they're just British spies and counter spies and misinformation brokers, I'd say. Ah, there we go. Their main idea is to create the 12th Army, which does not exist, and provide all sorts of troop movements, fake radio, bogus messages, which say that the 12th Army will be invading Greece. 
was very familiar to what they tried to do before what they did successfully do before d-day yeah was that also the 12th army or another fictional army well i don't think so because this is just it seems like it's just british it doesn't seem like it's a whole allied invasion i wouldn't be surprised montague who is at the meeting says that all of that won't be enough proof and chomley who's also at the meeting agrees he has been working on something called operation trojan horse which was taken from the trout memo idea number 28 which is a corpse with fake documents washes ashore as the result of a failed parachute. The Nazis might actually believe this because of a failure to follow up with a similar actual body, which had actual documents on it in Cadiz. So, yeah, the whole thing about the body floating ashore was interesting. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm going to skip ahead a bit, but do you remember later when someone says, well, why would you have waterproof documents unless you're intending to go swimming? So Mm -hmm. did that dude have waterproof documents? It's not a question I expect you to know, Christian. It's just it just makes me wonder, like what was going on with that. I would have liked to have heard more. I I feel like it's also it's probably this case of for them they wanted to ensure that it, the ink wouldn't wash out, whereas the other body, you know, it happens that the ink didn't wash out. It's a case of you know something happened by happenstance or ensuring that it happens. Mm. Well, definitely the Allies lucked out that. Well, on the one they got unlucky that it actually made it through, but then got lucky that the Germans didn't capitalize on it. Fleming leaves with uh, Chamley and Montague. He mentions M, which I found very curious. Apparently he calls Godfrey M, which is the same Mm -hmm. thing he calls his mother. Does Fleming say it's because Godfrey is scary just like his mother was scary? Because that's the real life reason. I don't remember whether you said it. That's exactly what he says. Oh, okay, nice. But yeah, so as they're talking, Chomley is trying to poke holes in the idea. We find out that the reason that Godfrey is set against this idea because no, is because number 28 was actually Fleming's idea, not Godfrey's. And he cribbed it from a novel, The Milner's Hat. <laughs> and they go to find a corpse. Hester hires two cryptanalysts from Bletchley to monitor signals about Sicily. And here's where we f- find out why... 20 committee. committee? Is called as such because it's actually two X's, as in a double cross. Uh, that's British humor for you. Right up there with a the bullseye on their airplanes. So a couple of observations here. They talk about Bletchley Park, and they talk about something called Bentley Purchase. And that yep. confused Did the shit out of me. Did you get confused? Yeah. <laughs> so I looked it up, and uh, Bentley Purchase, I thought was... Is a person. Is a person. I thought it was like the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah, that was one. <laughs> All right, and then I also really like the part where they're going around looking for corpses. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a music montage from a wacky comedy. And I, I also <laughs> like. I had a, a realization. I like Ian Fleming a lot as a secondary character, as a Captain uh-huh. Jack Sparrow type, where he like comes mm-hmm. in, causes some chaos, and then goes out again. Mm-hmm. And I also got to say, in this movie. He is mm. not a drinker, and he isn't aggressively hitting on the women around, which is very interesting. Well, I feel I like mean, you would almost we expect don't that. See enough of him to see him do that. Like we don't even see him ever out at the club, which we'll see everyone else at. It's really because this isn't his story, right? Which is why I think he works really well here. <laughs> no, I mean I enjoyed any bit of Fleming that we have. They're saying that they can't find a suitable corpse, so Hester says, all right, you need to go see Bentley Purchase, who it happens to be the coroner of London. Mm -hmm. So he's skeptical about this idea, but once he hears that Churchill has approved it, he helps them find a body, the body of one, oh, I forget how you pronounce this already, Glinder Michael? Yeah, it's spelled G-L-Y-N-W-D-R, which is like an elf name from Lord of the Rings. But apparently it's Welsh, (laughs) and he is Welsh. Welsh, I was going to say it's that makes sense. So he mm-hmm. died from chemical toxicity. Basically, he committed suicide with chemicals. That's right. However, this apparently would not actually rule him out because only a very skilled coroner would be able to tell this and that he died from this and not from drowning. However, now there is a time lock because the body will soon rot, so they need to act within three months. Yeah, it's a time lock on top of their first time lock, which is the invasion itself. <laughs> Did they have... I don't know that they had a definite date by that point. I think you may have missed it, Did but they, I, think it, I think it was okay. the same conversation where Churchill says, I already told Roosevelt it would be uh, Sicily. The, also, the date approximately uh, was also set, and it wasn't going to be changed. Got it. Okay. 
So we get more of uh, Fleming narrating and, and on his typewriter. I'm surprised they didn't even just make it the golden typewriter that he's famous to have used. <laughs> well, did he have it during the war? Somehow no, but so. you know movies, you know, they will work in <laughs> things like that, even though, yeah, even though it's not accurate at all. So we have Montague, Hester, and Chomley meeting at the Gargoyle Club, which is Montague's club. Montague states that this man, their imaginary man, has to be real. He has to have parents, rank, habits, hobbies. And Chumley brings up that there has to be no inconsistencies. If there's any inconsistency, if there's any inconsistencies, how is that such a hard word to say? If there's any inconsistencies, that'll sink the whole operation. So they first come up with a name, a very common British name, William. They decide he'll be a Royal Marine, Major William Martin, which is a common enough name. And when they make his identification, they also put Montague's identification number on there so that he'll be the first one to find out if someone looks him up, which I thought was pretty clever. <laughs> they decide, all right, he'll be carrying a photograph of his sweetheart. So they need colleagues to submit snapshots, which reminded me of there, there's a bit of this in Fleming, except it was uh, Officer Monday who you, they used a photograph of. Right. Yes, that's correct. So first they say for him to be real, he needs to have romance and the romance needs to be real. What if he's single? Right. What the heck? Why do they got to take shots at a single people? Like I that? mean, in World yeah. War Two, if you were a soldier in uniform, you probably weren't going to be single unless you were by choice single or, you know, any other reasons. I don't know if I quite agree about that, but I'm not informed enough to know. Anyway, so also this co- co-worker photo thing just kind of blows my mind. And I know they did it in real life, but it seems like such a bad idea. Chumley goes to see the coworker from the theater, Jean Leslie, to help with a photograph. And she says, all right, what about this? And pulls out, pulls out a photo of herself. Jean wants something in return. She wants a seat at the table. She wants a piece of the action. Mm-hmm. Okay. So first of all, I do think it's funny that she has a sexy photo of herself on her person. I think that's funny. And uh, it is a sexy photo. That's according eh. to my according to my research. It would have been considered sexy at the time. Um, <laughs> also, it, the proposition of him like asking her is very awkward. I don't remember exactly what he says, yeah. but that was funny. But I did like that. She's like, yeah, you can have it, but there's some conditions. <laughs> so they are trying to get a photo of Major Martin for use in his identification like in uniform. So they try to prop up the dead body for photos, except he looks very dead. Yeah. <laughs> so their new idea is to try to find someone who looks close enough to him. So mm-hmm. at the club, all sort of looking around at different people and they're like, nope, nope, face too full. Nope, too tall, etc. Montague and Chamley start adding details to um, Major Martin's profile. And they're definitely like adding from their own history I definitely call that this was flirty dialogue between the two of them. Oh, not yet, because this is just between Montague and Chomley so far. I'm we'll get to the flirty dialogue in a bit. Oh, <laughs> oh, all right, all right, all right. New fan theory. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, yeah, all right. You, you totally could be. Yeah, but I have a note. Is the whole movie just going to be them making up stuff about this guy? Obviously, it doesn't turn out that way. But it is really funny that their method for finding a guy who looks like him is to like sit in their nightclub and not move. Right, right. That's like that's your idea. Maybe, maybe go through all the photos of actual soldiers that you can just pull from one already. I mean, I understand they didn't have Google image search, but it's just absurd. So they also come up with a backstory for the photograph of Jean as well, who will be named Pam. And then as they're talking and chatting a guest of Jean's arrived, who's an American, Sergeant Roger Dearborn, who Chumley gets jealous for his, like, because he knows that she was married. Apparently not her husband, and she's actually a widow. But like, the, nice. thing about Sodger, <laughs> the thing about Sergeant Roger Dearborn is that he looks f- close enough to Major Martin that he could work perfectly for photographs. Yeah, the characters seem to be like, no, 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 don't leave, don't leave, please stay. As an audience <laughs> member... I couldn't really tell, so I sort of had to take the character's word for it that he was a good match. Yeah, I don't remember. Like, when I saw him, like, really? Does he? I don't don't think he does, but you know what? Okay, sure. I'll go with it. I'm actually surprised they didn't just use... Anyway, so as, as they leave, Gene and Montague are walking. Here's where we get more flirty dialogue. As a lot coming more. Back, 
And they're coming up with more backstory for Pam and Bill, as they're starting to call them now. Just like before, it's, you know, from their own life experiences. And they go into a dance hall because Gene, you know, says, oh, look, they're playing Bill and Pam's favorite song, which now they're establishing as their favorite songs. This whole thing of them making up backstories about these characters reminds me of a movie that I covered with the Spy Hearts called The Little Drummer Girl. Uh, which we shouldn't cover because it's not that good of a movie. But for those of you who have seen it or know about it, the very interesting but not well-executed premise is that one of the characters falls in love with a guy who's created by a spy agency who writes her these letters of love, even though he's not real. So huh, apparently that's not quite as apparently that's not quite as far-fetched as I was led to believe when watching the movie. It has a little <laughs> bit of its origins and truth right here. Uh-huh. Now we are in early March. So they're preparing more details. They're testing samples of writing that soaked overnight in seawater. Mm-hmm. There's been no word from Bletchley. The Germans still believe that Sicily is the target, so nothing that they've done so far has worked. While Gene and Montague are chatting, the code girls are snickering. Apparently they saw them dancing, saying they looked a lot less formal then. And then Godfrey calls Chumley asking about mincemeat. Chumley goes over to uh, Godfrey's office and reports that, you know, the body should be delivered by submarine rather than airdrop to minimize any sort of damage to the body. That was funny when they were talking about how the body could like disintegrate on impact or something like that, which I'm sure is a very (laughs) real possibility. But it would definitely cover up the fact that he didn't die by smashing into the ground if they smash his body into the ground. Not exactly respectful (laughs) of the dead, though. This is the point where Godfrey asks about Ivor, who is, again... Montague's brother, we find out that apparently he's a communist sympathizer and suspected spy. So this is again like imitation game, where you have the mm-hmm. higher-ups thinking that you're compromised, as if you didn't have enough problems. Also, I like that his name is <laughs> Ivor, not to be confused with the Igor. I mean, Ivor was actually a fairly common British name back in the day. That's cool. I've never heard it before. Chumley starts to notice Montague and Jean talking a lot. He catches Montague showing off the ring that Bill was going to give to Pam. So it's just more flirting. He is like, put your hand down. Let me put the ring on and see how it looks. Oh, my God. So inappropriate. <laughs> so inappropriate. Uh, but, uh, but on the right. other hand, Chumley, dude, you just got to get over it. OK, she's obviously not yeah, into no. you. Just move on. So Chumley goes to confront Montague about, you know, why would you take that out of the safe? And then at this point, as they're, both, as they're about to get into an, that big argument, they get a call from Bentley Purchase. Michael's sister has arrived. This was Even actually they kind of funny. Would, yeah, they thought that he had no uh, living relatives or next of kin. I do think it's interesting that the movie did have a scene where they talk about the ethics of using somebody's dead body. Oh. Didn't really go over it before much before. It's not really what the movie is about per se, but I still liked it. As this is happening, Godfrey is presenting the plan to Churchill. He point. This is where we get the scene that you talked about earlier about how the ink would wash out in the sea and only a man plant could drown would use waterproof ink. So Churchill wonders why Godfrey is endorsing Operation Mincemeat because he's pretty dead set against it turns Mm. out he isn't actually endorsing it uh it's too big a risk but he wants to keep it running a little bit longer to flush out ivor montague because he thinks he's a russian spy so yeah godfrey again this is like imitation game where the higher-ups are playing this like four-dimensional chess thing it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me that why? They would risk failing the operation and getting a lot of people killed to catch a Russian spy. Just why? <laughs> and that, that's ultimately why Churchill decided against it, too. What you're leaving out, though, is that Godfrey has his own plans, his own ideas of what he thinks is that plan is too risky and that his own plans will make it will work. So it's not that he's risking those lives of the men he just doesn't want them to succeed because he doesn't think it will he thinks his own plans will work so i don't believe necessarily that he's okay with risking the lives of that what he's okay with is them carrying out their little tasks having their little fun just so he can flush out the spy yeah i don't know if he makes such great decisions because it doesn't seem like the normal stuff is working so far but no it's not yeah (laughs) fair but that's what his gut instinct is it so he's he's not at this point the morality is not about the men it's more about 
do we just let them continue doing their work? Yep, gotcha. Montague and Chumley are trying to get the, his sister to release the body to them, sort of. It's unclear, like when they, so they start talking, but it also, it, on the one hand, I'm not. It makes it sound like he's still alive, but an undercover mission. On the other hand, she also knows that he's dead, so I'm not sure. It was a little vague to me, like how they were trying to get away with it. If she knew that he was dead, she would want to bury him in right. a graveyard yeah. under his real name, which is now what they want. So they're hoping she'll just go away. But once it became clear right. that she was catching on to it and she wasn't just going to go away, they needed some other way to get her to agree to let them do it, which is pretty funny. Right. Yeah. And Fleming actually comes in and tells them they have Churchill's approval. And he tries to offer her some sort of you know monetary compensation, which she just sort of scoffs at and leaves. <laughs> yeah, classic Fleming. What a move. <laughs> there you go. So at this point is when Captain Ainsworth arrives, who's the naval attache in Madrid. And he looks like Putin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait, you don't think so? Uh... Back when Putin was less puffy. Really. When he was more in shape. Okay. Uh, no, I didn't see it. I didn't, didn't. Can't say I noticed that. The body will be released from a submarine, and they'll move the documents with the help, and that's help in quotation ah. marks, of two German agents in Spain, Klaus and Kulenthal. Klaus will find the papers, and Kulenthal will believe them, so they'll get those documents to Berlin if all goes as planned. And the person who they really need to see those documents is Colonel Alexis von Ron who controls military intelligence in Nazi high command and is a brilliant spy. However, there are rumors that he's part of an anti-Hitler circle who is try- working behind the scenes to try to depose Hitler. So not only is this movie a sidequel to uh, one of our very first episodes, it's also a prequel to Valkyrie? Yeah, or a side movie. But yeah. if, for those of you who didn't like that The Longest Day had basically no spies in it, this movie has tons. It's just spies everywhere. I loved it. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, I loved all the spies. Just all the spies everywhere. The most important document that Major Martin is going to have on him is the letter which has the lie about Greece. And so Montague is writing up the letter which is supposed to come from General Nye. Everyone has opinions on this letter. Chomley starts saying, nope, I don't like it. We start seeing the cracks in the partnership. Everyone having an opinion on the letter is the most <laughs> realistic thing I've ever seen in any movie <laughs> we have ever covered in my entire <sighs> history on this podcast. I don't know about your work. In my work, I do writing and people want to have mm-hmm. opinions. And it goes through rewrite after rewrite after draft. And one guy will make a change and then they'll go back to him and he'll change his change. <laughs> uh, That's yeah. the life. That's life of an office worker. Chumley interrogates Montague about seeing Gene, you know, in their off hours. And he's like, you know, it's unprofessional and you should you have a wife and children. It's not clear what exactly they're yeah. doing. Like, right, are they having right, an affair yeah. or not? Mm hmm. But yeah, but I do agree it's unprofessional. They submit the letter up to Godfrey. He says it needs improvement. Everyone has an opinion on it, including he mentions Q Branch. Yeah, Q Branch is dropped. There's a part with a buzzsaw watch. Do you remember yeah, that? So they go into Q Branch, otherwise known as the Ministry of Supply, mm-hmm. which is when they're trying to set up the canister, which will hold the body as it's being transported. And Fleming's with them, and as they <laughs> As they're there, he's like, what's the watch for? What does it do? Apparently, it's a buzzsaw, which is directly from the movie Live and Let Die. Well, so this part was pretty blatant fan service for the James Bond fans in the audience, because it never even comes back, because I don't recall it ever coming back in the movie. Oh, no, it doesn't. And also, it's it falls into this trap of, all right, people know what's in the James Bond novels, not necessarily what's, or sorry, what's in the James Bond movies, not necessarily what's in the James Bond novels. So, all right, if we have Fleming, we'll put something in from a James Bond movie, even though that's so, that thing, the Buzzsaw Watch, never appeared in a single Fleming novel. <laughs> well, there's an episode of this, the TV show Timeless, where they have Ian Fleming appear. The things they reference are from Skyfall which Ian Fleming did not write, and Never Say Never Again, which also was not based on a Fleming book. So I'm just like, really? You couldn't have picked... 
anytime he shows up, it's like they they make Bond references, but never to stuff that would actually be something that he wrote. Yeah, it's like if you're going to go through the trouble of getting the writer of the James Bond books, then could you at least look up which books he wrote? I mean, come on. It's not yeah. hard. I mean, I still laughed. It still mm-hmm. worked on me, but I was also slightly annoyed. <laughs> Chomley is talking to a submarine captain. Montague is now on draft 14, and he's so stressed out, and he has an idea. He realizes he can just go straight to General Nye to write the letter, and then he presents it to Godfrey, and he makes the point of, this letter is pretty identical to the first letter that I submitted to you. Yeah, this was hilarious. That was, like, my favorite part. (laughs) (laughs) They got some flack for not respecting the chain of command, except apparently General Nye, when they approach him, they wondered, why didn't you just ask me to write this letter? So yeah, I guess a lot of people are in on the operation and know what's going on, which is interesting. General Nye's name is going to be on it. I would assume he'd have to be on the loop if someone asked him about it. Well, apparently something. they use each other's pictures <laughs> in this well, in this operation. Well, <laughs> yes, but that was with permission, at least. It's not like they're just using a random person's picture. Except they do for the photo of the body. As it turns out, yes. They got flack for not respecting the chain of command, but now they are saying, all right, well, we respect the chain of command, and you're the only person who can approve it. They have a champagne toast. Hester is finally done with the love letter, and Jean reads it aloud. Chumley gets a package from upstairs, and he stays up all night reading it. Apparently, it's the file on on Ivor Montague. Yeah, I didn't realize the significance of this part when it happened, because it means now that he knows uh it... It means he either has to turn him in or be implicated. And obviously mm-hmm. he doesn't turn him in. So that's not great. So there's a, like, as they're fl- like flirty at the door, you know, Montague eyelash off of uh, Jean's face, which will come back later, even though it seems like just mm-hmm. another excuse to have them being flirty. Chumley meets with Godfrey about what to do about Montague. And Godfrey wants Chumley to spy on Montague. And says, I know that your brother died overseas and your mother wants his, her body brought home. So we can make something happen. Nice. What a guy. So back at Q Branch, they're taking photos of the letter folded only once. Mm-hmm. That way they'd be able to tell if the letter has been opened and refolded. And they put an eyelash in the fold. Hey, see, I told you it would come back. Just like James Bond putting that string or whatever. Or was it a hair? I think it was a hair. It was a a hair, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they start also putting all the details on the body. The letters, the photo, they handcuff the briefcase to him, and then they seal him in the container. Next, they meet the driver uh, for MI5, who's going to bring the body uh, to Holy Lock, which is where the submarine base is. Apparently, he's on his fifth drink. Apparently, just everyone gets to know who's in the container. Also, my note is this guy's a drunk driver who apparently is so drunk <laughs> that he uses the term miles per hour, even though he's British. <laughs> I didn't even catch that. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Well, apparently he says he has like pretty high clearance. To be fair, Mountain, you didn't even check that out at all. Just sort of said, OK, you have clearance. Sure, you can find out. <laughs> sure, I believe it. I'm like, oh my gosh, how is there still an hour left? You'd think them dumping right? the body That's... would be like the climax uh, of the movie. Apparently not. So, Chumley and Montague get in the truck with the driver. And as they're going, Chumley asks Montague about Ivor and tells him that Godfrey thinks he's a spy. Montague's indignant, which makes for a very uncomfortable car ride. <laughs> I'm sure it was hours long, too. And also very bumpy in the back of a truck next to a dead body with a pretty drunk driver so yeah mm-hmm. not a great ride all around not something i would like to do uh at least good scenery though <laughs> which they can't see because they're in the <laughs> back of the truck <laughs> after who knows how long they arrive at the submarine base at holy lock uh oh here's the captain submarine captain's name jewel has found a bunk for chumley on the sub which he did not discuss with Montague at all, and Montague's upset, but Chumley's like, you know, shouldn't one of us who's been through this whole thing with him be there to send him off? And he's like, eh, I'm leaving in a huff. He's very trusting of his underlings to accomplish yeah. things correctly. Montague is the one who actually drives the truck all the way back to London, and he goes to Jean's house, apologizes. He says, 
his feelings are real, but I have a family and this can't be. And Gene's like, yes, and Major Martin is in dangerous waters now and he needs the both of us. Yeah, she's so, so we're sad. We're going to just pretend that nothing happened. <laughs> so we go to April 30th off the coast of Cadiz, where Chumley is helping drop the body. He says a prayer. Montague is back in room 13, where Gene approaches. Apparently, they haven't heard anything, but we see the body wash ashore as fishermen find it and take it to the authorities. And those authorities are just so helpful. They just can't wait to give it right back to the British <laughs> where it came from, which was a great twist. Yeah. I didn't see it coming. Yeah, well, well, Chalmley is returning to room 13. One of the cold girls asks if the buildup, the troop buildup is going to continue, even though all reports show that the Germans still believe that the attack is going to be in Sicily, which means that all the other pieces of the deception that Godfrey was in charge of failed. Presumably, yeah. But like we talked about earlier, the decision has been made at the highest levels and they're not going to change it. Uh-huh. I see it a completely different way. All right, the decision's made. So it's not, yes, it's not that it's going to happen whether or not. Now the pressure is even bigger because they have to do this no matter what. Because if they fail, all those people will die. So I see it, I see it from a completely different perspective. Uh, your perspective is also correct. Can more than one perspective be correct? I think so. The, so there, a quote around here somewhere and it's not one of my favorites, is, yeah. quote, the fate of the free world depends on a corpse and a donkey cart. Do you remember yeah. this? <laughs> yeah. They got to stop saying the fate of the free world depends uh, on so many uh, All right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> they really don't. Like, I, I uh. agree that the Battle of Sicily is important, okay? I'm not diminishing that in the movie. I'm just saying I don't think the entire war hinged upon it. Is that sure. fair? Can we agree about that? Does it, though... Well, so I'm actually not one of those people who believe that Nazi Germany was always doomed to lose World War II. Because a lot of people oh, yeah. say that. Like, like as soon as they attacked right. not, yeah. the Soviet Union, they were going to lose. It was just a question of how long it took and how many people got killed uh-huh. in the process. I actually disagree about that. Not because, okay. not because like Germany was good at fighting or anything like that. It was more like, what if the Allies just gave up? What what if they lost right. a bunch of battles and they were like we're not going to win so we'll just sue for mm-hmm. peace because like I feel like Nazi Germany's win condition is just being able to continue to exist right yeah you know so I think World War II easily could have ended that way if it weren't for the Greatest Generation mm-hmm. yeah I agree with you there um, but this is a movie that has to have like feel like it has stakes well it does and have also- stakes. I know, but also people are, just in general, I feel like people tend to over-exaggerate things anyway. So if it's, you're going to over-inflate your own importance in this process, just like Andrew said. You know, every single spy story is the most important spy in history. To you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is Hollywood at the end of the day still. But yeah, so here's where we get to all the twists and turns that I did not see coming. So the Spanish Navy is really trying to show how how neutral they are trying not to hand over everything to the british also there's a slight snafu because the coroner is better than they thought he would be because he's actually a like a, pro- a professor of uh, forensic medicine from a university yeah and he specializes in drownings which i thought was especially yep. funny <laughs> uh, this part almost turns into a comedy. Like, I do think it was funny yeah. that that one British admiral like hung around during the aut- autopsy. Uh, British attaché in uh, Madrid, I think. Or, oh, but I guess it also makes sense because he is a British guy. He's a that... he's a British citizen, yeah. Mm-hmm. A British soldier, yeah. But yeah, so I liked what the the attaché does though, because he's like basically tries, you know, does it in a way where he's convinces them to follow protocol. By saying, you know, you don't know who's watching. I don't want you to get in trouble. You need to make sure everything gets done by the book. So they go ahead and call the other attaché, and they being Montague and Chumley, on the unsecured line because they know that the Nazis have, you know, bugged the unsecured line to ensure that the Germans will hear it. They also send a memo to the British embassy saying that they need to get the body back under no uncertain terms, mm-hmm. which the Nazis will intercept so that they think they really need to get this body before the brits do i actually found this part <laughs> kind of hard to follow like who knew what and where and what was happening wow, uh-huh. and where the documents were yeah. 
Also, as this is happening, we see Roger Dearborn, a.k.a. our photo model for Major Martin, who finds Gene on the street. Apparently, he's shitting out. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's unfortunate. (laughs) You should get that looked at. Apparently, he's shipping out in the morning. He has to write to Gene, who says, of course, yeah, you can write to me. So we find out that of the two German agents who were supposed to be, quote unquote, helping, a.k.a. they were going to manipulate them to do what they wanted. One of whom, Klaus, who was supposed to be the more competent spy, was two steps behind on getting the documents. So they were all in Madrid. So he wasn't able to do his job as he was supposed to, as the mm-hmm. Brits wanted him to do so. But Kulenthal, the other, you'd be able to intercept those um, the message and get it to Berlin. Attaché in Madrid, apparently they have bugged every single office except for the one they need to. Another comedy so he seduces, moment. <laughs> he seduces a secretary to get close to the office so he can hear everything that's happening in the meeting. First of all, she's really attractive. Second of all, okay, I didn't understand whether he seduced her or whether she was always in on it. Because I mean, yeah, I, it was. I got a the bit impression. Yeah, yeah, I got the impression she was like in his payroll, and he's like here, like pretend like you're making time with me. But then she like gets really into it. That's like, really what I'm saying. It. Like, I think it was a previously previous relationship that he's just resuming. Um, oh, that's yeah, another good but, theory. Let's talk about it some more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we find out from him listening to the meeting that Kulenthal did not documents from the head of the uh, what was it, the Spanish Navy. Mm-hmm. What they need to do is they need to get the head of the secret police involved, who this was interesting. So he had previously ran the Madrid attache as a double agent, even though he was actually secretly a triple agent. Another one of those triple agents. You got to watch out for them. So he he being the British attache manipulates the secret police to get the papers to Kulenthal. Yeah, this guy just, he's just manipulating everybody. He's just all over the place. Uh-huh. Is there anything this guy can't do? <laughs> There's some suspense and a lot of waiting. Apparently, Gene saw Chumley and Godfrey meeting. Uh, Chumley goes out for some air, and Gene tells Montague that he saw, that she saw uh, Chumley and Godfrey meeting, which he gets suspicious about. But before anything can happen, the teletype starts moving. And we find out that Moreno, who was the head of the Navy. So the way the movie depicts this, it seems like they get the info really quickly. And I'm sure that was yeah. not the actual case. No pun intended. No, no. I, I, I mean, it, what it was is it's for the convenience of the audience. You don't want to have you want to see things like we'll get that information, but we'll also see it as, as well. So, yeah. So mm. Moreno, who's the head of the um, Madrid Navy or the Spanish Navy, is bringing the documents to the British Embassy, and apparently Kulenthal is on his way to Berlin. So, Moreno returns the documents, seemingly untouched, and they finally get they make their way all the way back to London, where we have the moment of truth. Was the letter read? We find out from the head of Q Branch that alright, the seal hasn't been touched, however it is possible to remove a letter without breaking the seal. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, I mean, there is a variety of ways that you could do this one of obviously is steaming it. This is actually my favorite of the ways to open mayo secretly is to cut a small slit, insert some tongs, wind up the whole thing, and then pull it out. The added wrinkle I never thought about is all right, you know, it'll be curled, but if you soak it, then it won't be curled. Here's the here's the thing: because if it was wet, that makes it easier to do pull that off. Oh, I see. Nice. Normally, I don't know how. I think they steam it is what you do, but because it's completely mm. soaked already, they could just get away with just wetting it. I think you just nice. steam it to make to flatten it out usually. Nice. Or another way I know of is if you just a lot of them involve steam because you can like steam to remove the the glue of the envelope, or you can steam it to make it transparent and read through the letter. Mm-hmm. Steam was just apparently very available. <laughs> so apparently, the only way way to tell if it was actually curled up like that is to wet it again and see if the curl comes back. They notice the eyelash is missing. Next we have a scene which got my suspicions up immediately. Jean is at home and she's turning on the light and as soon as she does she sees the photo that that they put on the body as being from Major Martin's sweetheart Pam and behind her is Teddy the bartender from the 
gargoyle club that they have frequented all the time. We find out that Teddy is a German agent. He threatens her to find out what the deal is. Why is her photo there? Are these documents legitimate? What's going on? Okay, so a couple things. The first is this is one twist too many. I didn't need this <laughs> quest. There was enough twists. <laughs> Things were stressful enough. But also, I should say that mm-hmm. he says he's part of the July 20 plotters, the anti-Hitler uh-huh. crew, and he describes himself as a good German. Uh-huh. The ones Anne Frank said should be killed last. Um, <laughs> yes, she said that. That probably wasn't in the version of the diary you read. But anyway, the question, though, is, was he actually a good German or not? And we don't know. Mm-hmm. So Hester, back at room 13, refu- receives an intercept from Germany, which states that the Germans believe that the attack will be on Greece. And as they're busy about to ce- celebrate, they get the call from Jean. Back to Jean's flat, where Montague and Chumley are shouting at each other, saying how irresponsible. This is the guys at your club. Didn't you vet him? Of course I vetted everyone, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. However, the most important thing that I found from this is that Gene was actually able to tell Teddy that oh, the alias was fake, but all the documents that he was carrying were real. Yeah, so, if he believes that. The most important thing from this scene for me was that the love triangle is back and in full force. <laughs> I mean, I was impressed that Gene under pressure was able to make up that so that it, it could still work. Yeah, the plot could still be on. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. what else was she going to say? She could say that. I mean, she could have said that the whole the whole plot and gave it's it all true. away. Anyways, Montague says that he'll put up Jean in his spare room because she's not safe there anymore. Chumley proposes that what if Teddy was actually sent was sent by Von Ron and the the anti Hitler organization. Right. So, but what if he's not? <laughs> yeah. So they go and report to Godfrey. Chumley and Montague. Kind of, we can see the relationship starting to heal because they both try to take the fall for each other's mistakes. Mm-hmm. Godfrey thinks that all the troop movements to Greece are a ruse. Chumley propo- proposes that what if it's not a ruse? And Fleming tries to back them up. We find out that Churchill wants to proceed, and so they're going to go forward. Yeah, well, he was always going to proceed. I keep saying that. Right. But in the meantime, there's so, just so many questions. Also, Chumley's mother gets word that her his brother's body is finally being brought home. Also, Jean is packing up because she's taking a posting elsewhere. And Montague tries to convince her to stay, but then realizes, no, this is what she wants to do. So she should go have her own story. Yeah, she says she might go to special operations. She might be a D-Day girl. She said she might be mm-hmm. a radio operator. I was like, no, Jean, don't be a radio operator. Your <laughs> life expectancy for six weeks. Listen to our D-Day yep. girls episode yep. for more about that. The invasion is, you know, going to proceed, but both the Chumley and Montague are still not sure if this worked. They also wonder why Churchill believes it will work. And Hester has a letter for Montague from his wife. Yes, because that's what we want to hear about right now. (laughs) (laughs) The invasion is about to begin. Room 13 is waiting. Fleming is over in the corner narrating more. He says he's writing a spy story because, of course, it's Fleming and he has to be writing. That's what he does. It's either that or macking on women. So we see bits of the invasion. There's a few casualties that we see. I got to say, I was expecting this to be what I, a new term, Christian. I've come up with a new term. Harriet battle. <laughs> okay? It's where they start the battle. Oh. And just when it's going to start. And then you don't see anything. Yeah, because they got to save some money to make the movie. But that was not the case here. It was very close no, to a Harriet battle. Awesome. Yeah. But we don't see much. And then back in room 13, the teletype starts moving. We get word that there were limited casualties and minimal resistance, as well as a message from Churchill. Mincemeat swallowed. Rod, line, and sinker. Yay, Churchill believed in us even when nobody else did. I actually thought the part <laughs> where the teletype was coming out, I thought that was pretty effective. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was, it was good tension. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Montague and Chumley are reminiscing and reflecting on the mission. Montague offers to buy Chumley a drink at eight in the morning. And with that, our movie ends, but we get a few bits of text. That's right. We learn how everyone's lives were, which is always my favorite part. So Montague apparently reunited with his wife after the war, and they stayed together until Montague died in 1985. Jean married a soldier who was a part of the Sicily invasion. 
That's an interesting coincidence. Yeah. Hester continued as the director of the Admiralty Secretarial Unit, and Chumley remained with MI5 until 1952, later married and traveled widely. Major William Martin's identity was revealed to be Gwinder Michael in 1997 when an epitaph with his real name was added to the headstone in Spain. Yep, and we get to see the tombstone because he's the real hero. And I have a giant note here that says, and it's underlined, Von Ruin, or however you say his name. What did he know? (laughs) And when did he know it? (laughs) We will never know. Incorrect. I have that spy fact versus fiction coming (laughs) up shortly. All right. Well, do you want to start off our spy fact versus spy fiction then? Yeah, don't mind if I do. So the movie on the whole was pretty darn accurate especially compared to some other stuff right. that we've seen. So my two sources are Marco Delacava at USA Today, fact-checking that Netflix's Operation Mincemeat was James Bond creator really involved, and also historyvershollywood.com. So the real right. Gene Leslie was single, had never been married, and was only about 18 uh. or 19 at the time. Ah. Uh. John Madden, the movie's director, said that Montague and Leslie did call each other Bill and Pam. Very creepy, Uh in my humble opinion. And Leslie's photo was used as a stand-in, and it was found on the corpse's belongings. And she wrote on the back, Till death do us part, your loving Pam. But according to History versus Hollywood, there was no affair. Okay, yeah. As far as anyone knows. In real life, Gene wasn't conditional about handing over the photo. Rather, a sort of contest was held Uh amongst the women in the offices, and Leslie's photo won. She had sufficient security clearance and was able to be included on the secret mission. Uh I guess it's up to you what sort of contest you think that meant. I don't want to speculate. Okay. Sister Doris existed but did not show up in the movie, demanding to know where her brother was. That was made up. Uh, Uh, there, There was also no Teddy in real life. Oh, okay. Okay. So nobody came to Jean's house to threaten her. Uh Uh, David Ainsworth isn't a real person, and he didn't have romantic things with men and women spies in order to get his info, like in the movie. Uh Uh-huh. A couple of other things. Sorry, I know I have a lot. Um, What did Von Ruin know? Okay. I wanted to know (laughs) this. So according to Wikipedia, he was a staunch Christian. He is... Beliefs were at odds with the Nazi party. Historians believe he led a double life by deliberately misleading Hitler and the German general staff. He was arrested for involvement in the July 20th plot. He was sentenced to death by Roland Freisler, if you remember him, the guy in the red suit Mm -hmm. in Valkyrie. He -hmm. was found guilty and hanged on a meat hook on 12 October 1944. Yeah. His final epitaph to his wife reflected his faith, saying, In a moment now I shall be going home to our Lord in complete calm and in the certainty of salvation. Hmm. The book Operation Mincemeat had more examples of him passing along fake info. According to its author, it is quite possible that Lieutenant Colonel Alexis Baron von Ruin did not believe the mincemeat deception for an instant. And then the last thing I have... And then the last thing I have for Spy Fact versus Fiction is when they go to the Gargoyle Club for the first time and they're dancing, you can see black soldiers Uh, in the uh, background. All right. So I was like, okay, I had heard that the British were nice to African-American soldiers, way nicer than the Americans were, which is true. But I also heard that the British didn't have segregation, and that was not entirely true. According to the Imperial War Museum website, the British cabinet said, quote, it was desirable that the people of this country should avoid becoming too friendly, close quote, with African-American soldiers in order to maintain good relations with the U.S. On a local level, business owners were often concerned that if they didn't respect the segregationist rules of the U.S. armed forces, they would lose American customers altogether. So they did. Evelyn Clarice Martin Johnson, who served in Birmingham in 1945 as a postal clerk, said, quote, they treated us like royalty. But the main source of discrimination Mm. black troops faced was segregation in places like local pubs and social facilities where they would have Uh. white people nights and they would have black people nights. So that's not to Uh say that they wouldn't have been there necessarily in like they were in the movie. I just don't think it probably was that likely. Okay. Interesting. And that is all I have for spy fact versus fiction. We probably talked about this way back in Fleming, but there was mention of the trout memo again, which was a memo or a document written in 1939 comparing deception of an enemy in wartime with fly fishing. 
and it was issued under the name of Admiral John Godfrey, prepared by Ian Fleming. Mm-hmm. And yes, the 28th suggestion, as stated by Fleming, was inspired by a novel written by author Basil Thompson, was the inspiration for Operation Mincemeat. So this is all true. Mm-hmm. As is the confirmation from Churchill, Mincemeat swallowed rod, line, and sinker. Mm-hmm. A few times in the beginning, they mentioned the Haversack ruse, which was basically an idea that happened in the First World War, where Richard Meinertshagen basically let a haversack containing false British plans fall into Ottoman military hands, thereby bringing about the British victory in the Battle of Beersheba and Gaza. Oh, I know those places. Yeah. Kept calling the Ministry of Supply Q branch. It was never actually called it (laughs) that in real life. However, the head of Ministry of Supply, Charles Fraser Smith, was the inspiration for Q from the Ian Fleming novels. He did fabricate equipment which were nicknamed Q devices after Q ships for SOE agents operating in occupied Europe. So he did have that function, but they never actually called it Q branch. Mm-hmm. However, the Q ships, where they got the name for Q devices and eventually the name for Q branch and Q, were mystery ships or decoy boats, which were basically heavily armed merchant ships with concealed weaponry designed to lure submarines into making surface attacks. This gave nice. Q ships the chance to open fire and sink them. So the book that uh, Ian Fleming was inspired by is called The Milliner's Hat Mystery, an Inspector Richardson Mystery by Basil Thompson. I have not read it, but synopsis. Scotland Yard is concerned with a murderer or murderers of the mysterious Bernard Pitt. The dead man is discovered with a false identity, courtesy of many forged papers and documents found with him. So there's, there we go. It's right there in the first <laughs> paragraph or the first few sentences. So now I'd be curious to read this book and see how much was actually inspired. Actually, in the it also says the Milner's Hat Mystery, a novel which inspired Ian Fleming, was first published in 1937. So they even go there and say, yep, no, we'll put it on the back cover that he was inspired by it. Probably the reason why it's remembered today, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. All right, ready to get into our favorite quotes? Yeah, would you like to go first? Sure, I've got a few. From Churchill, I applaud the fantastic. It has many advantages over the mundane. <laughs> uh, I like from uh, Chumley and his obsession with like all these writers. He's like, my God, who isn't writing a novel? And you're surrounded by them, you know? Writers. <laughs> yeah, I remember writers. That was funny. <laughs> from uh, Montague, it's a dead body. We're going to play a trick on Hitler. Yeah, put that in the trailer. Telling, yeah. Mm-hmm. And finally, from both of them, I may vomit. I may vomit with you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so a few I had the part where they're going through the montage looking at bodies. There's a part where they open a door and Montague says, where are his legs? And you don't even get to see the body leaving <laughs> up to your audience's imagination. Yeah, yeah. There's a part where Churchill says, I detest fish. Churchill had a lot of good lines. <laughs> And then finally, when they're dealing with the body in Spain, somebody says, lunch and a siesta are moments away. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? All right, now it is time for our ratings on a scale of 1 to 10 martinis, 1 being Avengers 1997 and 10 being even better than Taken. How would we rate Operation Mincemeat? I can go first. Would you like to go first? Go ahead, yeah. Okay, so... There's a lot to like in this movie. There is just enough Ian Fleming to keep things interesting, just enough James Bond references to avoid going totally over the top. That being said, I felt like it was slow and probably too long. And although everything at the end with the briefcase would have been a lot better with better pacing as it is, I was just sort of waiting for the movie to end at that point. It wasn't super engaged, but it is still pretty good. There's a lot to like, and it's very accurate, which helps. So I will give it a five and a half out of 10 martinis. All right. So I really enjoy this movie. This is, I think I love this kind of spy action, all the twists and turns and also the ideas and planting things to make someone else think that something else is happening. My least favorite part of this was the live triangle. I didn't really need it in there. Here's a question that we didn't should have looked up for spy back versus spy fiction. Was his brother really a, a spy for the Russians? Oh, I didn't mention that. Yes, he was. Okay. All right. But so I was like, is that a turn too far? Um, <laughs> apparently not because it was real. Mm-hmm. But I enjoyed it a lot. I 
like you said, there's just enough Fleming in there to make it fun, but not too much to make it just, you know, an extended episode of Fleming. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give this a 7 out of 10. I liked it a lot, and I would recommend you go see it. Oh, also, one thing I should say is I did appreciate that it was a World War II spy movie that didn't have a Nazi guard looking at a piece of paper, <laughs> kind of squinting at the main character uh, and be like, okay, you can go. Uh, that's so your that German accent. That sounds Russian. <laughs> well, whatever. Uh, all right. Anything else you uh, want to say about uh, Operation Mincemeat? No, no, that's it. All right. Well, thank you for joining us here on the SpyFi Guys. You can find us on social media at the SpyFi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Zach. And I'm Christian. And we are the SpyFi Guys signing off. Thank you for listening to the SpyFi Guys. If you enjoyed our podcast, please be sure to give us a five star rating on iTunes. The theme song from this podcast is Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Films, books, and television shows reviewed by our podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a personal podcast. Any views, statements, or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the participants. They do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the participants may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. Any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual. You can find our podcast on social media at The Spy Fi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.